Welcome to From the Front Porch, a conversational podcast about books, small business, and life in the South. It has always been a happy thought to me that the creek runs on all night, new every minute, whether I wish it or know it or care, as a closed book on a shelf continues to whisper to itself its own inexhaustible tale. Annie Dillard, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. I'm Annie Jones, owner of The Bookshelf, an independent bookstore in beautiful downtown Thomasville, Georgia, and this week we're hosting our quarterly Backlist Book Club. In today's episode, Hunter McClinton and I are discussing another Pulitzer Prize winner, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard. As a reminder, if you've ever wondered what The Bookshelf actually looks like, you can follow us over on Instagram at bookshelfteville. We post a lot of behind-the-scenes pictures, give updates on shop events, and offer book recommendations. Plus, we'll keep you up to date on all the podcast episodes so you can read along with us. Follow us on Instagram at bookshelfteville to put faces with names and so you can see the business behind the show. Now, back to today's conversation. Hi, Hunter. Hello. Welcome back. It's good to be back. Can I tell you, I should have planned this better because it is Pride Month, in fact, and the next backlist book club we're going to read is Less by Andrew Andrew Shangrier, and I felt so dumb. I was like, wow, what a missed opportunity. I feel like I owe the public an apology, and you. (laughs) I will say this. This is something that I think is actually... The reason why I don't think it's a problem is because... You're, you're constantly reading all types of stories all year long, right? Like you're not I like doing so. this. That's the goal. I think it gets kind of messy when you're like, you're like this month I will only be reading this. And then like you drop it off and the, rest the rest of the month. Yeah. The rest yeah. 11 months of the year. Okay. Well, good. That makes me feel a little bit better because when I sat down, I was like, oh, how exciting we read less next time. And then I thought, well, Annie, you could have really themed this out a little better, but I didn't. So, <laughs> and it, for the record, I also feel like this book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek starts in the winter. And so I was like, ooh, wrong. (laughs) But that's fine. We'll get to it. So welcome back to Backlist Book Club. This is a project we started several years ago, it feels like, for Mm -hmm. From the Front Porch. We brought it back this year and we're reading Pulitzer Prize winning works. And we read Beloved earlier this year. We're reading Pilgrim at Tinker Creek this month. And then I believe in August, I have on the calendar for us to discuss Less by Andrew Sean Greer. So... I want to talk about Annie Dillard and Pilgrim. Mm -hmm. Had you read this before? I feel like, of course, you had. But tell me your personal history with Annie Dillard, with Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Tell me all about it. So I had actually not read this one. This was one of those that I'd wanted to read for a long time. I had read her book, um, I think it's called The Writing Life. And I was, I mean, I have read that book many, many times because I just thought it was so brilliant. Mm -hmm. And... And just so moving for a book that's about writing. It's one of those, you know, it's one of those craft books where you're like, oh my goodness, like this is clearly a genius who somehow is making me cry over the, (laughs) just the very art of like, of putting, you know, like pen to page. And so Mm -hmm. um, I loved that. And then a couple of years, I think in 2018, I think um, I read Alexander Chi's essay collection, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. And he um, studied under Annie Dillard and he has this really lovely essay, which you need to read. Mm-hmm. 
I'm like at a point two to the screen. Well, um, you should, you know, the point is deserved because I, I still haven't read. I want to like hide my face in my shirt. I still haven't read Alexander Chi and I feel like I need to fix that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Which, you know, yeah, because Tyler's reading Edinburgh right now. I saw that. And that's why I was yeah. like, okay, Tyler, I need to get on this. <laughs> no, I think, I, you know, I will tell everyone now, like, go read Alexander Chi. I think that actually, I think if you were wanting to read Pilgrim at Tinker Creek with us, I think that reading his essay about studying under her is a really great kind of companion piece. Can I find that online? Like, should I yes. link it in the show notes? Okay. Yeah, you can. Yeah. I'll do that. And so basically, the way he wrote about her made me fall even more deeply in love with her as a writer and a person. And I honestly, I think you know this. I don't know what any book is ever about before I start it. And so yes. that was a big shock when I was reading this one. <laughs> because I went into it and I was like, ooh, I wonder what, like, I literally had, I was like, is it going to be about a pilgrim? Is it going to be about, like, a memoir of hers? And this book is definitely nothing. I, I think if you, like, just did not know anything about it, I think you would be very surprised by what it is. So I was familiar, obviously, with Annie Dillard. But I will be very honest, obviously, you are my friend. uh, And I will tell you that I had never read anything by her in its entirety. So Pilgrim at Tinker Creek is something I distinctly remember reading excerpts of in high school. Mm -hmm. I feel like it was included in anthologies that I read for school, whether it was late high school or early college. And I remember loving those. And I certainly have read excerpts of Annie Dillard here or there throughout my adult life, but I'd never, I'd never read them in completion. I'd rather never read them to completion. And so as much as I love and appreciate my English teachers from high school and college and for the works that I got to read snippets of, I'm also a little frustrated that it has taken me well into adulthood to read these works in their entirety. And I know that's because time is limited and blah, blah, blah. But So I picked this one up knowing, I did know what it was about. Like I knew, well, what I knew was that it was nature writing Mm -hmm. and it was kind of a year in the life kind of thing. And so I went in knowing that, but it really is so much more than that, although it is a little difficult to describe. And so I hope we'll kind of get to talk about that. Why don't you give us kind of a synopsis and then we'll get into our discussion questions. This is a hard one to kind of like syn- synopsy to summarize, <laughs> summarize because it's, I mean, like you said, you know, it is a year of, but, but it's really just, it is a exploration of uh, the world. It's, it's, it's a philosophical, like, it's like, it's, it's philosophical. It's nature writing. It's, it's all of the things. It's like thinking mm-hmm. about all of the big picture stuff in this woman's life at this certain point. And I guess and it doesn't even, it really is, it separates her life so wholly from like her, her lived life. Yes. From like the observed life. Yes. And so I think it's, it's, yeah, I think it's like, you know, the observed life and, 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 and really like pushing everything else away to, to ask the big questions, which she both, which I will also just say as a side note, she not only does this like in the writing, but she's also structurally like everything is lending itself to these to how what she's trying to do you almost don't realize it until you at least in my edition until you get to the author's note at the end and then you're like oh i see like like oh i i get it because you're right i love that observed life rather than the lived life we're going to talk a little bit about that because this book i think I was going to say, does it say on here? But I guess it really doesn't. I felt like I knew this was nature writing, but I thought for sure it was air quotes memoir. Like Uh I just felt like, oh, that's where I would shelve it at the bookshelf. Like it's memoir. And upon reading it, 
honestly, is it memoir? Like to me, it is more about her observations of the world and choosing to like go, oh, super micro level, like microscopic detail on bugs and parasites and frogs. And then somehow also macro level, who is God? Is mm-hmm. is God? Question mark. Like, where does all this come from? What does it all mean? What role do I play in it? But you get very little about Annie Dillard. Yeah. Well, that's it's so funny too. To me, this feels like if your smartest friend, like it, it was like if you asked your smartest friend, like, what do you think about big ideas? I feel like they if if they were at the height of their like genius. Mm-hmm might come close to this. Yeah. Um, th- th- I, I don't know. It's so hard to describe just how, I mean, it's, it's literally every question that every big question, every big idea that you've ever had to gra- try to grapple with. She does that in a way that you're like, how? Yeah, absolutely. That's how I felt as well. So I do want your perspective. I thought we could kind of start here because you're reading through, as we've discussed, you're doing this great reading project about reading through the National Book Award long lists. And so you're kind of plotting your way through those. I'm curious, this is a Pulitzer winner. Obviously, that's what we're reading this year. I am so intrigued that it was the Pulitzer in, I believe, 74-ish? 75. 75. Okay. Uh Was this an outlier in terms of other winners? Was this a winner? You're, you're reading the national book award and you're kind of frequently commenting on like what was appropriate or expected of that time. I'm curious about this one. So actually in the seventies, in the, in the, in the mid to late seventies and early eighties, the Pulitzer nonfiction books were actually a lot about nature and yeah, about like the, yeah it's like i think that maybe in the 60s mm-hmm. there was a lot more social uh socio like i you know like maybe some climate activism almost like for i don't know well i think so like so you know if you think about okay so i think that like what it, i think that so the civil rights movement started in 58 right mm-hmm. around that or, and so yeah, i think so i would think the mid to late 50s yeah yeah so like so or maybe it was 54 is what it was maybe wait maybe it was 54 i lied it's in the fit that's okay see i don't know my history it's okay um <laughs> it's i like okay, it's, we're friends. listen I, I will also say researching so much for these newsletters like there's so many <laughs> historical events and i'm like what year did that start like you you learn so much that then you can't keep your date straight yeah but no it's it was in 54 and so yes um and so you start to see in the 50s it's around 1957 1958 where you start to see the reflection of the world's events of the civil rights movement trickle okay. into the into writing. literature because yes. they're writing that they're writing it. It takes a while to get things published. Right. Yeah. And so that's what I meant is that, is that cause it happens with the national book award, even in fiction where you start mm-hmm. to see this trickling effect happening. But with, I think that after the mid sixties, it's so funny, right? Like I, I think that, you know, we're always in flux. And so we have these moments where we're like, we have to, we have this urgency to write about what's going on with humanity and, um, and we see a lot of that with like, topics about racism and homophobia, transphobia, all these things. And so you see a lot of that in the, in the 50s and 60s. But then in the 70s into the 80s, it's almost like we we thought like, oh, we can put a pause on that and like really focus on. And, and I think, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with uh, highlighting any types of books. But I just think it's interesting. But yeah, basically, we started to see a lot more nature writing in that point, point in time. Although so little of it actually writes about... It, it doesn't really feel like it's addressing some, kind of like the crumbling of the world in a way that I would expect it to. 
Mm-hmm. I just, I was so, when I finished it, I mean, I found it to be beautiful. Like, spoiler alert, I will say approximately one-third or halfway, maybe one-third, one-third of the way through the book, I had a moment where I thought, how in the world will I be able to publicly give Pilgrim at Tinker Creek four stars? Like, because John Green has this whole thing about rating things, and I thought, man, I'm going to look so stupid. <laughs> but but that was how I was feeling. Mm-hmm. And then by the end, I was stunned, and I was like, oh, good, five stars. <laughs> five stars. This book is amazing. But I did think this feels different for a Pulitzer. But that is also because I am not doing a project like you are doing. Like, I don't particularly always pay attention to award-winning lit. I think I certainly have since owning the bookstore, but I don't know that I necessarily did before that. And so I finished it and thought, gosh, like, what else around this time? Like, was this partly raised up as the Pulitzer winner because it was unusual for its time? Um, Or was this a frequent subject that was being addressed, but Annie Dillard was addressing it differently? And you get a, you get some answers if you do a little research, but I was not, I am not familiar with the Pulitzer winners or finalists. And so of that decade in particular. And so I thought I would ask you. Well, here I am. And I will say too, I do think that hers was like one of the first Hers is one of the first ones that kind of like started the wave again. Uh-huh. But I also think that hers is one of the few, it, while I don't really think that, while I don't really think that she's writing, uh, it's not really, it doesn't really feel, I, I don't know. I hate to like kind of like genderize writing, but I do feel like there is a difference in perspective that she's bringing to this, uh, like a, that then a lot of the the male writers, I guess, just in how she's like engaging. Oh yeah. She was certainly, you know, she's not Henry David Thoreau. Um, and, yeah. and there's this really great article. So we'll link to the Alexander Chi essay you mentioned. There's a fantastic article I came across today called the Thoreau of the suburbs. And it's an Atlantic article from 2015 mm-hmm. all about, um, Annie Dillard and the impact of this of this book. And in it, I think even Annie Dillard herself is kind of reflecting on um, she worried about publishing this book under her name. She worried about not being kind of the stereotypical adventurer like John Muir or something like that. And so she is very different, even though throughout the book, you don't really know if you just stumbled upon this book and didn't right. know who Annie Dillard was or you didn't know the author's name, you would have no idea who the narrator was. There's really very little gingerizing of the narrator at all. But I do think she is different. And maybe even, oh, I, you know, I hate to throw this word around, but maybe a bit of a trailblazer for her for her yeah. time. I do feel like, right? Like, I feel like in the same way that we bring who we are, we we, we bring our identity and and our struggles and the, and the ways that we've been shaped by the world to our reading experience I definitely think that happens with a writing experience and I think that you know being being a woman at, at even at this point in time we're still seeing like a lot of struggles like kind of going mm-hmm. on you know and so I think I think that like I, I mean because it's even in the books from like the um, the 60s that were on the National Book Award long list you see a lot of like women writers kind of writing about domesticity and like in that Mm. confining kind of thing and, and just trying to say like no like this is not the road that everyone has to take even then and so i mm. think that you know if, if she was had any influence in that at all maybe that was part of the reason why she felt the need to separate that mm. um i don't know anyway i'm curious since this was your first time reading as well did you like me so i started this and liked it mm-hmm. but i immediately thought 
you know, I was reading it for this podcast for a specific deadline. And I thought, oh, dear, I've waited too late. Oh, dear, this this is going to take me a lot longer than I thought. You and I know that we, you and I both will be like, oh, I'll read this on it. We're recording Wednesday. I'll read this Tuesday. It's fine. That's right. I, well, I pull, I pulled it on Monday uh-huh. and I was like, I'm going to read half on Monday, half on Tuesday, process and take notes on Wednesday and then record Wednesday evening. And I started it on Monday and really did think, oh, I have made a mistake. This is the only way I know to describe it is this is classic literature. This is literature I need bandwidth for, brain power for. This is not like, I don't know, a simple essay here. This is right. this is verbose. Uh, um, not a, I, The word is certainly not flowery. That's not what it is because I think her writing is actually quite, her descriptions are actually quite sparse. But it is, there is depth to this writing, density. There is density yes. to this writing. And so for the first 50 or 100 pages, in fact, Tuesday morning, I was on page 50 or 60. And I looked at Olivia and Esme and I was like, I've got, I'm so sorry. I have to go home. I I have to go home and read this Mm -hmm. and I have to set aside. It can't be like in between something. It can't be while I'm in my car waiting for something. It has to be like, put everything else aside, put the phone down, focus, read for a couple of hours. And I'm so glad I did that because then I don't know if it was me and my own surroundings changing, my own attention changing, or if I became accustomed to the rhythm of Annie Dillard's words. But after page 100, it did feel a little easier. Like I did feel like, oh, I'm used to this now. Now, it is still, boy, a lot of descriptive nature scenes. Like there is a lot. But I wonder, did you also find that to be the case where you reached a point where you felt like, oh, yes, now I get this? Well, it's funny because, you know, this the book opens with this scene with the cat jumping oh, through the, the window. Cat. Yes. And I was like, oh, this is delightful. Yes. You know, and, and it feels like a trick in a way, because you you get it. It's kind of a this... funny little anecdote. And then there yeah. really aren't a lot of anecdotes. <laughs> no. And so I was thinking this is gonna be great. And it's so funny because I you know, whenever I read books, if I if I don't think I'm getting it, I always think it's so funny. I can tell that, and it's funny, especially with this book, because I'm always like, um, the other day somebody was like, they, they asked, they're like, they're like, do you consider yourself like a religious person? And I was like, not religious, but I guess like spiritual. But I'm always like, I'm always like, God, if this is gonna reveal something to me, let me know. Um, and Does like, sound vaguely religious. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm like, I'm so, it's like, isn't that like, so anyway, but yeah, so I was like, I was at a point about like, you know, 60 pages in and I was like, well, this is going to be a toughie. So I might need a little, I might, I might need a little, little spiritual help up here. Um, and then of course, you know, I got to, um, I think it's in chapter six where she talks okay. about self-consciousness. Mm-hmm. And how um, it's like your own self-consciousness is kind of like is what brings you out of these moments. Yeah. And how consciousness is important because that's how you're experiencing things. But self-consciousness is, is is bad for that. And so basically, I read that. And it's one of those things where, you know, I just, I just went on this trip to New York and New Jersey to visit a friend. And I spent, there were all these really beautiful moments. And then I would become aware of myself and I'd be taken out of it. And I, and I think that, you know, it's one of those things where, and I think all books do this, where it, it may only be like one paragraph or one page or one sentence that says something that is so accurate to your experience that you are living in the moment. 
that you're like, mm. this is why this book is meant for me to read. And, yes. you know, and so that, that was it for me. And it was in the late seventies, early eighties. And I was like, okay, I was like, now I can, I can finish this. Well, and I think there is also a moment where you're right, where there's a passage or a sentence or a paragraph that maybe speaks to you personally, or there's just a moment where you realize, oh, if I pay attention to this, there's good, there are good things here mm-hmm. because we're going to talk a little bit about this. I love nature, but I thought, man, this scene, and there are some scenes that will stick to stick with me, I think, for a very long time. One is the scene in which a frog is sucked dry by yes. a water bug. <laughs> and I, I could very much visualize that in my head, and I was appalled. Yeah. And so she has these really gruesome descriptions. There's a there's another scene where a praying mantis is like eating itself or like eating its prey and mm-hmm. its head like turns around. She's very very descriptive. Um and so those moments caught my attention which this is what I think is so interesting about her work. She kind of paints this really gruesome picture where it snaps you into awareness like if you've been kind of glazed over reading yeah. which I think I was in parts then all of a sudden you're reading and you're like, wait a minute, what? And you go back and you read that scene again. And then what follows is something philosophical or theological. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I was back in again. And so probably from page 100 or maybe like you said, 70 or 80 on, I was pretty well hooked because all of a sudden I was like, oh, I see what she's doing. Like it took me a minute to get it. And then it was like when I did, I thought, oh, okay, now I'm invested. Whereas at first... I felt like, ooh, could this be a slog? Oh no, no one prepared. No, no, one, pre- no one prepared me um, that this might be a slog. There's also this really beautiful passage. This is how I know there are two ways I know that I really love a book, and one is that I literally like carry it around the house. Like I don't know what I'm not ready to put it down. Like I'm, yeah. not, I'm not ready physically to shelve it. And then the second way is if I read it aloud to Jordan. And poor Jordan got home from work yesterday, and I was in our little reading room. And he sat on the floor and I was like, great, glad you're here. I have some things to read to you. And I I proceeded to read through multiple passages of this beautiful work, including this passage. And this is one of the only personal passages in the book. It's this brief moment where she talks about being six or seven years old in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And she becomes obsessed with hiding pennies in the sidewalk or pennies in trees. And she chalks arrows to show people like where the hidden money is. And she takes great joy in this surprise, but she doesn't stick around to see, does anybody find the money she she's hidden? Like, it's just this thing that she knows she has done. And then she of course turns that into almost this allegory or this metaphor for we walk around not seeing the pennies in the trees. And I loved that so much but it's one it's kind of a rare example in the book where she shows a bit of herself there's really not a lot where she tells us who she is she's mostly telling us who and what nature is and what that says potentially about humanity as a whole not what yeah. about what it says about annie dillard as a whole which i thought was really that was not what i was expecting i definitely pictured oh we're going to get Pictures of Annie Dillard tromping through the woods and right. taking off her dirty socks and hiking boots at the end of the day and crashing into bed. We really don't get any of that. Were you surprised yeah. by that? Well, it's funny because I think that it's moments like it, it's it's stuff like this where somebody transcends the self 
in that capacity that is why books like this win like books like uh, mm-hmm. awards like the Pulitzer right is because and that's the thing too she's trying to like I think that because she's trying to be less like involved in the self and 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 more out there it, it, it makes sense but like it did take me a minute because I was because I just I just read The Crane Wife a couple weeks ago oh and my god so it's just so good um but I was like so I was kind of like in that mindset and then but then when you realize what Amy Dillard's doing I think once you start to realize what she's doing then you're like aha it makes sense yes yes yeah it's not supposed to be Annie Dillard's memoir right. which is definitely I think what I mistakenly thought it's supposed to be what a theological treatise uh, a philosophical treatise using nature as the lens I I I just have a lot of thoughts so it also made me think and I don't know I think you and I both have although certainly in different capacities and in different forms. You and I have aspirations to write and for Mm -hmm. writing and for the writing life. You are much better at channeling that part of your life than I am. But I'm curious. So as I was reading, Mm -hmm. I thought, man, what is it about these writers? I was thinking about, I was thinking about landscapes that I have actually seen. So Mm -hmm. I've been to Walden Pond. Um, I traipsed around Walden Pond, certainly not like Thoreau did, but I did hike around there. Like I have a very vivid picture of that in my brain. I stood in awe at the beautiful pastoral landscape of Jane Austen's home. I've gotten to sit in C.S. Lewis's house and look outside and see his beautiful garden. I mean, these are experiences that I never thought I would have in my life. I got to go to um, L.M. Montgomery's home and see see why Anne Shirley loved Prince Edward Island so much. Like, But all of those things to me are so pastoral is the best. Pastoral, lush, green, like mm-hmm. very you go there and you instantly know, oh, this is how someone could sit and write because look at what surrounds them. And I thought the same thing about Annie Dillard's writing. I thought, oh, and then like, you know, I'm sitting in my little house in Thomasville, Georgia, and I looked out my windows and I thought, well, crap, like, (laughs) like, like, how am I, how am I going to write like this? How am I, which I'm not, but how am I going to how am I going to express the things I want to express if I look out and see a street light? Like, how does this work? Mm-hmm. And so I was curious, did these moments ever hit you where you also feel like, wait, I live a more suburban life or a more, I don't live in this idyllic landscape. How will this impact or affect my writing? And then I, of course, want to talk about what was actually Annie Dillard's writing experience, which I learned after reading the Atlantic article. But I just wondered, does nature play any role in your writing life? Yes, but it's it's funny because not you would think maybe it would play more of a role like at like you know in the in the now, but mm-hmm. you know I grew up, I mostly grew up you know with my granny in a, in a beauty shop and like most of my stuff was like very like in that realm. But mm-hmm. in my teen years, I was with my mom and my stepdad a lot, and they lived like in this like in a log cabin deep in the woods. And mm. so all I saw were like, I mean, and there was like over 200 acres of of just trees and trees and like all that stuff. And so a lot of times actually when I'm writing, I, it's, I, this is so weird, but like, I'm constantly like just visualizing myself and in, mm. in that place. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, I, it, it really kind of feels like, and this sounds like so hippy dippy, but like, I, I kind of like all of the walls kind of fall away and all of the, all of the this the things that like I you know because I I live I do live a very like nice like sheltered life now but um but so I kind of like 
I just kind of like put myself back in that wilderness every time I'm writing. And and so I think that it does. It does in an unexpected way, but it does. So when I read this Atlantic article, and maybe you realize this too from reading other works of Annie Dillard's, but interestingly, I had pictured like, again, all while I was reading, I thought, gosh, like she lives at this creek and um, she is deep in the woods and she's like laying on her belly, like looking at the praying mantis, looking at the muskrat. Like I had all these visual cues that I was in visual, all this imagery that I was conjuring, um, picturing her there. And then when I read <laughs> when I read the Atlantic piece, I realized and Annie Dillard of her own admission was like, well, I lived in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. I lived in the suburbs. I was married. She was a. Ha- she said yeah. I was a housewife. She was married to her former professor, and it just so happens he was not an important part of the story, so he's not included. Mm-hmm. He didn't really care to be included. It wasn't important to the story right. she was writing, and she was like, "I never intended to deceive anyone." I guess it's just what I chose to focus on. And I buy that. I really do buy that. I did not feel deceived by Annie right. Dillard. But I will also tell you that I immediately was like, well, I wish I'd known that. Like, it would have made me feel less bad about, <laughs> about mm-hmm. my own my own life or my own natural experiences because I definitely pictured Cheryl Strayed, like, <laughs> you know, strapping on a backpack yeah. and like, you know, <laughs> perhaps um, not preparedly, but like walking through the woods. Like I just, I pictured something that then it turns out, no, she was going home to dinner every night. Even at one point she says, I began writing this book at the library where I looked mm-hmm. out on a tar, you know, an asphalt parking lot. And so does this, does this elimination of part of Annie Dillard's story affect the book or how you see the book or not? I don't think so, but I guess only because I think that when I real, it's so funny. Cause like, I, like, I think in the same way that we say, you know, yes, like, you know, her work is transcending like the self in a way, you know, the lens that we tell a story with is our own. And so like the way that mm-hmm. we the way that the way we see the world is our own, the way that our, our ideas that we're, you know, so like, so like we know so much, we, we probably know more about her from this than we would from like her memoir and American childhood or whatever, which mm. you know. So because we're like, we're learning the questions that she's really. Right. The things that she's asking. Yes. Yeah. And so I think that, so I do. So I guess that in a way, I almost feel like there's something more vulnerable here in saying like, let me, let me take away all of the things that like, the mask that I wear for the world, right? Like, let me take away like mm-hmm. this, this, like this life that I have, this, this marriage that I have, let me take all of those things and strip that away. And here is like, what is going on? Like in my mind and in my heart at all times. And I mm-hmm. think that's like a very, and so to me, like, and so I, I don't, I do, I think, you know, I think she's right. Like there was no place for everything else because, so I guess in my mind that does, that never really even occurred to me that she was leaving things out. Cause I was like that, whatever else must but just be extraneous. You're right. We really do get then, and this is what I think writers think about all the time, right? Is what is truth? And like, mm-hmm. what it, it, what does truth telling look like? Um, what does it look in, like in fiction? What does it look like in nonfiction? And we as readers, or I certainly think about that. Like I, I literally finished right before we started recording the new Emma Straub. And there's like a line where she talks about um, the truth is in the feelings. Like, and she and she's clearly grappling with her in the novel, the the main character's dad is a writer and she's kind of like, what, what truth is he telling here? What version of himself is he putting onto the page? And to some extent, even though we don't know, like you said, maybe about Annie Dillard's childhood or about her marriage, 
we really do know the most intimate parts of her after reading this. We know the questions that keep her up at night. And we know the lens with which she sees the world. Like, we know what what kind of person stands at a bridge and observes the muskrat for an hour. Like, mm-hmm. we know a lot about her by the very things she's chosen to omit. There's this great line in that Atlantic story I was telling you about, which is called, again, The Thoreau of the Suburbs. And she says, the author says, other writers have hunted down awe-inspiring experiences in far-flung places, on the Pacific Crest Trail, in the wilds of Arches National Park, or among the glaciers of Southeast Alaska. But Dillard walked around her own neighborhood and captured a world that was buzzing with wonders and horrors. And I immediately thought, okay, now that that kind of writing I can do. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, so it, it did also encourage me as a writer once I realized, oh, it's not like Annie Dillard spent six months living in the wilderness alone, which is mm-hmm. definitely, I think, kind of what I envisioned. I think I envisioned her living at a cabin in the woods. But no, she just walked around her neighborhood. And, and I wondered, you know, as I, so <laughs> this might be surprising to you or not, but when I, we were in the 11th grade, we spent a semester or, you know, a few weeks on the transcendentalist movement. Uh-huh. And I became uh, very invested. <laughs> I was very intrigued and into the whole thing. And I loved Thoreau and I loved Emerson, but I, I especially loved Thoreau. And then I remember growing up and into adulthood and a critique I always heard of Thoreau was, well, you know, he, his mom did his laundry And, you know, he lived right down the street from Concord. And, like, if you go to Walden Pond, it is not really in the middle of nowhere. It is Mm -hmm. is quite close to civilization. And I remembered thinking, well, what a cop-out. Like, why didn't he at least tell us he still had help? Or he wasn't completely completely Mm self-sufficient. And now I've taken yet another turn and thought, well, he didn't tell us that because he didn't need to. That's not what it was about. The whole point of that story was not hole up in a cabin and don't talk to anybody. The whole purpose of that was to pay attention. And can't we then pay attention anywhere? I don't know. Did you sense in yourself when you think about authors and what they choose to share or what they choose to keep? Has it changed your perspective on their writing at all? It's funny because I've been thinking a lot about a a couple of years ago when Alexander T's essay collection came out, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. Um, Cause he talks a lot about, you know, like, like how most novel, like it's a, it's a common, it's like a, it's kind of like a joke now at this point that so many f- first novels are like thinly veiled, you know, memoir. <laughs> and I was thinking about that. And then I was thinking about the friend by Sigrid Nunez, uh, which was the national book award winner in 2018. And, and also Florida by Lauren Groff. And all these books are, are books that are talking about like the self versus Versus like the story and, and, and how much you like, whether fiction or nonfiction, how much of yourself you're putting out there. Cause even in nonfiction, you know, with like, like this one's showing, like even in, in nonfiction, you are still, you know, crafting a, you're cultivating a certain, a certain self that's, that's in service of the, of the greater narrative. And, and to be, and I also think I'm very biased in this because, you know, like most of what I write is memoir. And so I think mm-hmm. that I have this like deep awareness now of like, that you cannot fit your whole self and you cannot fit any other person's whole self into any, I think, you know, there's this, there's that quote from priest daddy where she talks about that, how you really, you know, there's this, there's almost like a joy in, in knowing that you can't f- really fit a whole person onto a page. Right. Right. Which is actually so comforting. And, and yeah. I don't know what it is about myself where even in my writing, when I am writing 
more essay kind of things. And I think, oh, well, this isn't really fair. Like, this is really only my perspective. I think that might be my Enneagram 5 brain, to be honest with you, um, where I just want to see everything from all sides, when the Mm -hmm. reality is the only story I can tell is mine. The only story I can tell is my perspective, at least in terms of essay writing or, or memoir writing. And so it actually takes some of the pressure off, right? Yeah. To realize, oh, this isn't meant to be the whole story. This is yeah. just part of the story. Well, and I think, you know, we've talked a lot about Mary Carr, who, you know, I'm obsessed with. Um, yeah. And she actually, you know, she talks a lot about how, you know, like she will say like, you know, m- maybe my sister would say this, or maybe my mom mm-hmm. would say this, you know, like she'll, she'll include those moments. And I, I always find that very beautiful. Or, or she'll even say like, you know, that maybe her memory is, is often. And I, I love when, when writers, you know, are, they're so honest to the point where even in this, even in how they choose to portray the narrative, they, they, they show uh, the scenes a little bit. Speaking of Mary Carr, who I think also does this quite well, this book feels like it's a book about nature. Mm-hmm. Then it becomes a book about philosophy yeah. and a book about theology. And even though the book is told in seasons, essentially, mm-hmm. we start in winter, what and Annie Dillard says is that the book is really divided into two parts. Yeah. And it's supposed to be the two ways in which there are to view God. One is via positiva and the other is via negativa. And so I wonder, did you naturally pick up on that division? Like, did you kind of pick up or it, did you do like me? And I certainly would not have been able to say, please, I'm not a PhD. Like, I wouldn't have been able to say, oh, yes, via positiva was the first half and via negativa was the second. But I did. And I think this we can uh, thank, we can actually thank my Christian upbringing because I immediately was like, a flood? Well, well, well. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, and so to me, that is when I did pick up on, oh, this book is changing tone a little bit after the flood. Yeah. I, it's so funny you said that because I literally thought the same thing. Um, I can tell we're both, well, you're, you're like North Florida, which is basically the crumbs of South Georgia. So it's the same thing. Um, but like, I was like, I, like, I, I actually thought I was, I was like, I almost texted you, but I was like, I don't know where she, I was like, I don't know. Like, I couldn't remember if you'd gotten there or not, but, um, yeah. but I thought I was, I was like, oh, this, she's definitely gonna pick up on this. Yes. Like, so that is where I did notice, oh, this book is not only told in four parts, it's really told in two. And so anyway, I wondered if this isn't, I feel like this isn't too personal. We talk about this stuff all the time, but like which, not even just which part of the book, because I think we've already answered that, but which way of seeing God makes more sense to you? So Annie Dillard um, in her author's notes says that the via positiva sees God as, and I don't think she's talking about a particular, like, I don't know that she's talking about a Christian God. Mm -hmm. She's just talking about, you know, a a God-like figure. She talks about um, the philosophers who look look at the world through the via positiva lens assert that God is omnipotent, omniscient, etc., that God possesses all positive attributes. Then the via negativa is they all stress God's unknowability. Um, And anything we might say of God is untrue because we can only think in creaturely attributes which do not apply to God. Which one is more appealing to you or which one is the way with you which you see the world? I don't know why, why I actually remember this. Uh, this somebody said this a while back to me that they, they were talking about not this book. They were talking about those. Isn't this like? Is this? She didn't make this up. The 
The, no, she did not make that's this right. up. Okay, good. I was, I was like, I was like, because somebody else had talked about this a couple years ago to me. Because yeah. they said yeah. that the because they oh because they were asked they were they're like well you the, like it was somebody who's like trying to you know how people can be they'll they're like they're like well you you're from South Georgia so you must know about about like heavenly things to so tell me this and they were talking about <laughs> the via negativa part and they said that if you strip like via negativa or whatever is where you strip everything away that's not God and the God like and the, and the whole is like a, is is what God mm-hmm. is. Uh, what's mm-hmm. left, you know, and I don't know, I guess, I, I guess, like, it's funny, because I, like, I agree, I think with you, like, I, because I think that maybe you and I both thought that the second section was more uh, investing than the first, but I, but I yeah. think in a certain way, I think maybe that's because it goes against my nature of thinking that God is in mm. everything kind of thing, you know what I mean? Like, I, I yeah. you know, because I, I feel like I'm always, um, I, it's like, I don't know, I think, was it the color purple that, like, talks about that, like, about God being in the, I don't remember the whole, there's like a, it's been so long since I've read that, but no, I say a lot of, a lot, a lot of books talk about this, you know, about like how like, yeah. you know, God is in like, in, in everything. And, um, wow, maybe I just read a lot of like faith literature. I don't know. You know, you know me, I do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I was thinking a lot about this cause I love this question and I am, ir- again, I get so irritated at the things I don't know, which is silly. We shouldn't be irritated at the things we don't know. We should be grateful and learn to know them. But I had not heard about this two-part system. Like mm-hmm. I, this was new, this was new language to me and I would like to do some more research. I'm very curious about it, but I think I was raised in a household where it was via positiva, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I am I am firmly grateful for that. And and I think like somebody like my mom might still that might be the view which with which she sees the world. And I'm grateful for that. But I do think my personality is much more comfortable with the via negativa and yeah. with the gray and with the unknowing. In fact, it brings me a lot of comfort. I don't think that this brings my mom a lot of comfort. I, I talk about my mom because she's a spiritual person in my life. But like, I think for me, it is so comforting to know that God is unknowable and therefore, therefore I can't know everything. I think that is comforting to me. Um, and so it, it is not surprising to me that if that is the way with which she divided the book, that then the second half would have been not necessarily more appealing, but would have gotten my attention more than the first half. It makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Before we move on to more perhaps modern examples of similar literature. I do want to talk about the fact that she is laugh out loud funny. Did you laugh out loud? Um, yeah, I did. She, <laughs> she is, is so funny. very funny. And yeah. that is not, I guess I just want to let readers know because obviously it's a lot of deep things. We're talking a lot about God and a lot about faith. And, and to be clear, she, she talks about aspects of Judaism. She talks a lot about the Old Testament. She talks a lot about Buddhism. She makes references to different religions. To She quotes from the Quran. So it's not just Christian worldview she's espousing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's quite interesting, all the, all the writings she actually incorporates. Are, I find that to be really lovely. But anyway, I just don't want to hide the fact that this is also laugh out loud funny. <laughs> There are parts and passages where she's so like, I'd be curious to know what she is like in person. She's so witty, like very quick, Mm -hmm. like you're, it almost sneaks up on you, the sense of humor. And so if you're intimidated by some of the subject matter, I guess I would encourage you to not be because first of all, the nature writing is great. So if you just love reading about the physical world, I think this would be appealing, but also the way she writes really did cause me to laugh out loud on multiple occasions. Yeah. No, I do agree. And I also, I don't know. I always like, I always find it so fascinating when 
when nature writers, when they start to explore, like, you know, um, they, they go from nature writing into something like more, what, what, what word am I thinking? Is the, it the, esoteric or the, theological or yes, untouchable? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Thank you. Well, esoteric might be the, whatever. We know what we're saying. The words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you will go into your daily life now? I'm laughing because I know, I know me and I've already, it's already changed my life. I'm just curious. Will you now go into your life? paying closer attention to things oh i literally on my way it's so funny on my way home i was like i was thinking i was like wow i really haven't been paying attention and i looked out my window and i thought look at look at the flowers on the, the weeds look at the flowers on the side of the road and it's literally like full-on weeds and i'm just like the beauty I, there was a ladybug on my front door today and i was like i need to stop and count its spots like i just <laughs> So I do love that as well. It'll make you pay closer attention. Uh, We did this with Beloved, and I'm curious, as a bookseller, I obviously constantly think, okay, what could pair with this or what could live in conversation with this? Um, So what books do you think could live in conversation or be compared to Pilgrim at Tinker Creek? There is a book that I own, and it is somewhere. It's It's by the author of that Letters from a Young Scientist, I believe. Do you know what book I'm talking about? Yes, I do. I'm looking it up for you. He wrote a book called the called Creation or something. It's Edward O. Wilson. He wrote uh-huh. letters to a young scientist. Oh, E.O. Wilson? What's yes. Name? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he has a book called Creation, um, an appeal to save life on Earth. And it's and it, you know, and it's really interesting because I believe that he's he's either an agnostic, he's agnostic or an atheist or something, and he but he's writing to religious people to try to like find this like common ground of like, of loving the earth and trying to um, save it. And interesting. uh, Would I like this book? I think so. I think so. Because I think it comes from a very loving and interesting place of trying. I I just, I love this idea of, I mean, like, I think you and I both are like this, you know, we, we love to like find this, like find this like middle ground where we can have these really interesting conversations and explore things. And I think that that's something he does really beautifully. Ooh, okay. I think Eo Wilson is a great comp. I immediately thought locally of Janice Ray and Sue Cerulean. Janice Ray, I've mentioned many times before, she's written a book called Ecology of a Cracker Childhood, which is certainly more local, but Wild Spectacle is her newest essay collection. And Sue Cerulean's memoir, I Have Been Assigned the Single Bird, in which she talks about caring for her aging father while also talking about what it's like to be a bird watcher and a bird. She takes care of birds on the coast. I thought about Margaret Wrinkle's book, Late Migrations, and her essay collection or her collection of um, newspaper columns called Graceland. And then I also thought of Madeline Lingle. So a lot of people obviously know her from her children's literature or from her science fiction. But she wrote a beautiful quartet of books called The Crosswicks Journals. The first Mm -hmm. one, I think, is called A Circle of Quiet. But she's really talking about, like, her own life and family. And she writes beautifully about nature. I've read a couple of those and really loved them. And then as we were talking, it occurred to me that this is something Barbara Kingsolver also does very well, although in fiction rather than nonfiction. It's so funny. I was just thinking about her, too. And I also think there are three books that... I think that you could read like one of them as like a companion piece for that. And then read the other two as a companion piece. Like it's like just, just following the trajectory. Mm -hmm. But 
Uh, Annie Prue wrote, she wrote a book called Bark Skins. That is, it's kind of like, it's telling this story of, like, there's like, it's, a, it's like this, like, sweeping history through this, uh, this set of woods, this, like, forest, I guess. And it's very fascinating. And there's also a book called Greenwood by Michael Christie that is also... Yes. Okay. I've thought about that book. I've never read it, but I've wondered about that book. Yeah, that one. And there's like one more that I can't remember, but it's fine. I'll... Have you heard any buzz about the new... It's a new memoir, but it also looks like a science book called A Portrait of the Scientist as a Young Woman. It's by Lindy Elkins Tanton. I want to say it might be a Norton No, but that sounds good. Anyway, it looks really good because she's a planetary scientist and... Mm -hmm. All of this writing and Annie Diller's writing reminded me, we went to Los Angeles a few weeks ago and we went to Griffith Observatory and we attended the planetarium show. And of course I wept almost uncontrollably (laughs) uncontrollably at the end because they did this beautiful, I wish I had the script for it to be honest with you. It was called, um, oh, I think it was called Center of the Universe. Mm -hmm. And I was so deeply moved because it was about, yeah, humans and and their place in the world and in the globe and uh, in the universe. And I, I just really loved it. But, and so, so much of this writing, again, taking the macro, is that the, am I using economics terms? What am I doing? But like taking that macro, like big picture view and then like zooming yeah. in on these micro things. I just, I love it. I don't know that I can do it, but I am so grateful for writers who can. No, I completely agree. I don't know. I'm just, it's like, it's so funny. Cause like, I'm glad that we read this and I'm, I'm going to definitely probably read it again. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. I think it is one that you almost need to, dare I say, you need to read it more than once. Yeah, I would say that. In another way, though, it kind of, oh, and I think we both talked about how this kind of reminded us of Marilyn Robinson. Yes, absolutely. But it's one of those things where, like, sometimes, sometimes I'm like, do I want people to know? Because, like, <laughs> you know, like, yes, I want people to read it and love it, but, like, also, like, it's mine. <laughs> Yes. Yes. It's that, it's that book clutch to the breast kind of thing. Like I immediately, when I finished it, I texted my, or I think I was maybe halfway through because I was was loving it at this point. I texted Mm -hmm. it to my brother because I know he will love it. And then I finished it and texted it to my mom, aunt and cousin because I was like, they will all love it. But then I also thought, but if you guys hate it, I don't want, I please don't ever tell me. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) If you, somebody DM'd me very kindly and they were like, hey, I'm 50 pages in and I'm struggling. And I was like, totally. You can't, you absolutely are, your points are valid. I also struggled. Get to page 100 and I think you'll like it more. Because by the end, I just thought it was so profound. But you're right. I kind of feel ownership over it now. Yeah. Also, this is like random. Earlier, you were talking about, it's like you mentioned reading um, This Time Tomorrow, the new Emma Straub. And I was thinking, and I was like, as we were talking just now, I was thinking, I was like, why did she mention that? Because I already knew. And I literally just now remembered, you guys, like, you'd think that, like, I would know that we were recording because, like, you know, we've been doing this. But no, I always forget that we're recording every time we talk. Yes, (laughs) we really are. Um, I would like to close with one of my favorite passages and then I think that'll call it. And then in August, we're going to do this again and we're going to read... Andrew Sean Greer's book, Pulitzer Prize winning book, Less. Um, But I've got to tell you, this book has been on my list for years. And I'm so grateful for this podcast for giving me the push because sometimes I don't read things unless I have a deadline. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much. (laughs) Okay, here's a quote from Annie Dillard in Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. I am afraid and nibbled survivor in a fallen world, and I am getting along 
I am aging and eaten and have done my share of eating too. I am not washed and beautiful, in control of a shining world in which everything fits, but instead am wandering awed about on a splintered wreck I've come to care for, whose gnawed trees breathe a delicate air, whose bloodied and scarred creatures are my dearest companions, and whose beauty beats and shines not in its imperfections, but overwhelmingly in spite of them, under the wind-rent clouds, upstream and down. Uh. Okay. Okay. This week, I'm reading Flying Solo by Linda Holmes. Hunter, what are you reading? Oh, I'm reading Oh, William by Elizabeth Strout. (gasps) (laughs) From the Front Porch is a weekly podcast production of The Bookshelf, an independent bookstore in Thomasville, Georgia. You can follow The Bookshelf's daily happenings on Instagram at BookshelfTville, and all the books from today's episode can be purchased online through our store website, bookshelfthomasville.com. A full transcript of today's episode can be found at fromthefrontporchpodcast.com. Special thanks to Studio D Podcast Production for production of From the Front Porch and for our theme music, which sets the perfect warm and friendly tone for our Thursday conversations. Our executive producers of today's episode are Donna Hetchler, Angie Erickson, Cammie Tidwell, Chantal Carls, Nicole Marcy, Wendy Jenkins, Lori Johnson, Kate Johnston Tucker. Thank you all for your support of From the Front Porch. If you'd like to support From the Front Porch, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Your input helps us make the show even better and reach new listeners. All you have to do is open up the podcast app on your phone, look for From the Front Porch, scroll down until you see write a review and tell us what you think. Or if you're so inclined, you can support us over on Patreon, where we have three levels of support, Front Porch Friends, Book Club Companions, and Bookshelf Benefactors. Each level has an amazing number of benefits like bonus content, access to live events, discounts, and giveaways. Just go to patreon.com forward slash from the front porch. We're so grateful for you and we look forward to meeting back here next week.